Welcome to Superbugs Unplugged, where each month we talk about antibiotic-resistant infections, the superbugs that cause them, and the drivers of those infections and, and potential solutions. I'm Lance Price. I'm a public health microbiologist at George Washington University Milken Institute School of Public Health. And I'm Jay Graham. I'm an environmental health microbiologist at the University of California Berkeley School of Public Health. And Lance and I have been friends and research collaborators now for over 20 years. We went to grad school together. But each month, we're going to try to bring you the most interesting research, interesting people, and the most compelling and novel approaches being used to solve this public health threat, which is antibiotic resistance. And there's not going to be any shortage of silliness. Uh, that's guaranteed. I'm super excited because this is the first episode where I have Jay Graham as my co-host. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> and also, we're interviewing Maya Nadampali, uh, who's a good friend and a colleague. And she's a professor at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. And she just came out with this really exciting new paper that um, I'm excited to talk about. And Jay, it has to do with one of your favorite topics. Is it poop, Lance? It's poop. There it is. <laughs> As I'm totally excited about this paper, and I love that it gets at the complexity of WASH. Rather than thinking of WASH as just water, sanitation, hygiene, it gets at all of these elements of WASH that result in leakiness, which you all cover in your paper. Hi, this is Laura Rogers, Deputy Director of the Antibiotic Resistance Action Center. I wanted to let you know that in today's episode, our co-host referenced a couple of graphics that are in a new research paper that we break down for you. We've put the link to the paper in our show notes so you can check these graphics out as you listen or reference them later. And we've put the bio of our new podcast co-host Jay Graham in our show notes too. You can check out all of our credentials to be ensured we are all legit. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please listen, rate, subscribe, and share. We really appreciate it. Now let's get back to the episode. Um, well, let's jump right in with our guest, Maya Danapali, and let's talk about her new paper called Plugging the Leaks, Antibiotic Resistance at Human-Animal Interfaces in Low-Resource Settings. Maya, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Lance. Thanks for having me. And you know Jay, don't you? I do know Jay. You both have a, a propensity to work in low-income countries and study poo. Yeah, neighboring countries, um, and the poop connection is strong, yes. What are the neighboring countries? Is that <laughs> well, Peru? yeah, my work in Peru, and Jay's been working in Ecuador for a long time, so we've been trying to figure out ways we can uh, join forces and do some interesting stuff. I like to say that it's we're trying to look for the brown thread mm. that is fecal matter that will sort of weave our work together. <laughs> artistic. <laughs> I've never heard that before, but <laughs> do you know that they used to call <laughs> they used to call Jay the doo dude at USAID when he was there? I thought that was really appropriate. Um, so yeah, my I'm, I'm super excited to have you on the podcast and um, to talk about this work because, I mean, this is for full disclosure. This is a, a 
this was at least towards the end was a collaboration between the two of us. Um, you did all the hard work and I just, <laughs> I, I got to spend a, a, a nice part of the, the pandemic meeting with you on a regular basis while we wrote this up. And, and um, I, I tell you, actually the two of you, um, working with both of you during the first year of the pandemic was really a highlight for, for me. Jay and I were working on a grant and you and I were working on this paper and it was really helped keep me from completely melting down. So thank you both. <laughs> but so this is, this is really, this was the culmination of a lot of really hard work on your part. And, and I think one of the first studies to show this sort of empirical evidence for how like poor water sanitation hygiene and, and sort of animal production can amplify this problem of antibiotic resistance. Would you agree? Um, yeah, I, w I don't think it's the first study. I think there are lots of studies out there that have hinted at this potentially being an issue. What I think we did together was, um, you know, write a perspective that framed these findings. So I would say quite a few studies have shown similar patterns of antibiotic resistance in animals and humans in low-income countries, but that like larger framework for why that's happening pretty consistently across so many settings, I think that's the piece that we added that I was really excited about. Yeah, and so when did you start working on this sort of confluence among these factors? So, um, uh, let me think about this. So as you know, we met when I was doing my PhD um, in Eastern North Carolina or at UNC, but working in Eastern North Carolina to understand the spread of methicillin resistant staph between pigs and people in that direction from pigs to people, to workers, to their household members. When I um, moved to France to do my postdoc and join this international project, I was um, really interested and surprised, taken aback to see that colonization rates with um, these multi-drug resistant bacteria, ESBL producing strains, were so much more common in Cambodia, which is one of the study sites that um, this larger project I was involved in was working. And so because of my training, I thought, okay, well, maybe the fact that food production is increasing in these areas, um, as a result of that, maybe food production and drug-resistant bacteria in animals could be contributing to drug resistance in humans. Um, but I think like this idea of thinking about how it might be um, insufficient water, sanitation, hygiene, biosecurity infrastructure that was allowing for pathogen flow to occur between humans and animals, like that concept I don't know. I guess it was a combination of like actually spending time in Cambodia and realizing there were so many potential pathways for pathogen transmission between humans and animals that I had never, ever considered as someone growing up in the United States. You know, so like an example I often think about is the first time I went to a market, um, like a, a fresh um, food market to try to um, you know, take samples of meat products and administer surveys to understand what I thought were possible exposure pathways between um, meat and humans. I remember 
like the first thing I saw was the way people were paying for uh, meat that they were buying was by throwing money down on carcasses and then the vendor picking it up with their bare hands. And like, that's how all the transactions were happening. Money <laughs> <to eat. laughs> That's some mafia stuff, right? <laughs> I, was like, I was just like, well, my survey's trash now. Like, clearly, I have no idea of all the different ways that bacteria can be spreading between humans and animals. Like, why would I? And so, you know, there was that experience. And then, as you know, like when I went back to Boston, I um, I joined Amy Pickering's lab, and she is a expert in in wash. And so. That's when I just really started getting exposed to that subject and realizing, oh, this is like the missing piece that I have not been thinking about when I think about connections between humans and animals. That was a really long-winded answer to your question. Sorry. Yeah. No, I mean, I didn't mean to say, yeah, that was a long-winded question. <laughs> <laughs> answer. I thought that was a great answer. Uh, let's, let's clarify. Maybe Jay, um, I know you work on WASH a lot. Maybe for the listeners who don't study WASH, we can explain that acronym. Yeah, so WASH is short for Water Sanitation and Hygiene. And so typically, I think you know, historically, there's been a big focus on water. And then around 2008, increasingly a focus on sanitation and actually ending like the practice of open defecation, which you cover in your article, Maya, and then also hygiene. And, and we still have really poor measures for how we measure hygiene. Basically, they go in and look at whether a household has a place for washing hands that has water and soap, which is, you know, that even with just the presence of soap and water, that doesn't mean hand, hand hygiene takes place. But yeah, those are the sort of the main aspects of wash and the ways that we kind of, you know, focusing on them. And I think, so you mentioned open defecation. I know that's something close to your heart, Jay. Um, but Maya, I, I want to, I think we Are you calling it. me an open defecator? No, no. I know that you, one of your goals was to end open defecation. I remember this. Uh, so, but I love the figures that, that uh, Victor Lyshek did for the paper, right? And um, and this is a podcast. Obviously, pe people hopefully can go look at the paper and will. But um, one of the, the so one of the central figures is showing all these connections, right? Man, and I think mm -hmm. one of the things that let, let's talk about one of the things you observed: <laughs> human-animal interactions and open defecation. Well, I mean, I didn't directly observe it, but I know this is what's happening. <laughs> Um, whenever I show that graphic, which is beautiful, um, that is one of the pathways that I highlight because it's something that, you know, here in the U.S. we never think about, which is the potential transmission of pathogens from humans to animals. Like that direction of transmission of fecal pathogens is not something we think about. And so Victor um, has a little inset where he has someone ha trying to have a private moment in a, a grassy area. Um, but you can see a pig creeping up in the corner. And this is something I know <laughs> just from, you know, my parents being from India and um, stories my mom used to tell, which is that pigs love to eat human poop. Um, and so rural Cambodia, in any kind of rural setting where pigs might be raised, they're typically not like raised in confinement. You don't have 
hundreds or thousands of animals living in a barn like you might in eastern North Carolina. These pigs might be penned up for part of the day, but they're allowed to roam freely, which means that they can go around finding yummy human poop snacks to consume. And so you can imagine that if a person has been taking antibiotics because they were feeling sick and some resistant bacteria has been selected for in their gut, those bacteria are now going to spread to pigs or chickens or any other animal that comes into contact with human poop. And then, and then we're eating those pigs and chickens and processing them. And so there's like, as we try to stress really in the paper, you know, here, I think we, we talk a lot about transmission in one direction versus the other, but like what's happening there is more like a circular flow of pathogens um, that really messes with kind of the traditional tools and um, frameworks we use for studying transmission of AMR between humans and animals. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that we kind of speculated there was that there could be this iterative exchange and, and, you know, you've got an antibiotic use in both the animals and in people. And then, so what you can get is this sort of, uh, yeah, this evolution of multidrug resistance elements that are sort of being amplified in these individual hosts. And of course, new variants, and, and we've all learned what that can mean for us, right? It's like new variants, no immunity, you know, uh, yeah, it's an interesting, unique challenge in this space. So I, I think one of the brilliant things in that figure was that uh, it really brought that out and, uh, and, and how sort of the ecosystem of, of, this, of this challenge. And so in the figure you showed, you know, where are all the drug inputs and some of the surprising ones that I found, you know, was not surprising was the over-the-counter use in people, right? So kind of unregulated unre use. And then something we're familiar with is the use of, of antibiotics in industrialized livestock. But you also show it in just these sort of backyard subsistence farms too. So is that, is that really happening? Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's pretty poorly understood. I would say that there have been um, kind of lots of cross-sectional studies documenting um, the use of antibiotics in family farms in kind of um, larger scale farms, not nowhere near the scale that we have here, oftentimes smaller than that. But um, similar to what we see here, oftentimes these antibiotics are added to feed. And so people, I, I, I remember in Cambodia, we would see um, farmers would just have like bags of feed written oftentimes in Vietnamese script. So the farmers certainly aren't understanding like what the instructions are for use, but you would see like in English, colophon written in big letters mm -hmm. and things like that. So I think people, in, and if you read kind of qualitative research studies that have happened in Southeast Asia, people have this impression that animals just grow better when they give them these kinds of feeds that they're purchasing from middlemen who are importing them directly from China or Vietnam or, you know, whatever countries are doing this kind of feed manufacturing. And so, yeah, you have antibiotics being given to animals. Oftentimes the farmers themselves have really no, they don't have a clear understanding of what is being administered. And that is separate from actually buying antibiotics for, anti uh, for animals for treatment, for example, from a vet, which I'm sure is happening as well. I was curious about, you know, when I looked at that figure, one of the 
And I sort of the same sort of reflection that Lance had was about this issue of an ecosystem versus sort of real levers that you can point to within that figure and say, oh, if we, you know, if we did X, that could sort of stop kind of a, you know, a major transmission route. So how do you think about that when, because part of me thinks, you know, historically we've, we've kind of thought, okay, let's get people connected to water, you know, and then typically 30 years later, we'll start thinking about sewage infrastructure. Um, but I'm curious how you, you know, you think about a situation like in your study, where you have that figure one and the, the complexity of all those exchanges. Um, yeah, what do you think about that? Like, how do we intervene when it's so complex and there's so many elements to, that need to be targeted? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's one Lance and I have been struggling with. Like, where do we where do we move from here? How do we figure out exactly what levers to pull, you said, what what leaks to plug is how we describe it in the paper. How do we prioritize these things? Because, you know, we're showing this figure in the context of AMR, but like AMR is the just one of a million reasons why we should be improving public health infrastructure in other countries, right? Like diarrhea continues to be a major problem and all of these transmission pathways that we're talking about between humans and animals, they contribute to all kinds of other diseases as well in the human population. I will say that since I've been here at Emory and been engaging more with WASH researchers, there are a couple of pieces of evidence that have made me started to think that we should be focusing on markets. So one, for example, would be the Sandy Path study, which Jay, I'm sure you're probably familiar with, but I, I am like a little embarrassed to say, I didn't know anything about this until I came to Emory and met Christine Moe, who, who leads that study. Um, so Lance and Jay can explain probably in better detail. This was this huge Gates funded study to try to understand dominant sources of exposure to feces in low and middle income countries. And they designed this tool that combines like quantitative data collection. So actually like measuring E. coli in different kinds of samples with qualitative data collection. So conducting surveys in communities and schools and households to try to understand, okay, well, if I find a lot of E. coli in floodwater, does that matter? Like how, how many people are actually interacting with floodwater? And so it takes like those two streams of information to determine what um, kinds of like environmental exposure pathways are the most important. And so they designed this tool, they optimized it, they implemented it in urban settings across nine different low and middle income countries. And across the board, they found that produce was the dominant source of exposure to feces. And this is like, I mean, I don't think so surprising given like the research we work on, but I, I think, and Jay, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. I think it might be surprising for WASH researchers because as you say, like the priority has been clean water and toilets. And I feel like food systems have pretty much been ignored. And I know that, you know, your work in Ecuador is also showing that crops, what we're using to irrigate crops, which in Phnom Penh is straight up human sewage, um, like that can have, major implications for disease that haven't really been appreciated. Yeah, what we're finding, you know, it's funny because I think, you know, I came into this, this research in Ecuador, I think asking a little bit the wrong question and focusing solely on animals and the use of antibiotics in animals, which I do still think is a very significant source of drug-resistant bacteria to humans. But what we're finding is that typically what happens is all of the wastewater 
uh, in Ecuador goes into the environment untreated, about 95% of it goes into the environment untreated. That ends up cross-contaminating contaminating irrigation waters that are then used to water the animals and also water the, the produce, as you mentioned. And so we're, we're finding the same drug-resistant organisms in the animals, in the crops, and also the humans, where initially we were sort of blaming the animals, but now we're thinking, well, maybe it's the wastewater and it's sort of this cycle of events like you mentioned in your paper. So I really appreciated that you covered that, that point. And Jay, you're doing the podcast from Ecuador right now, aren't you? Aren't you down there? Yes, I am here. And uh, I was actually just going to go out and do some drone, drone images of where the wastewater enters, leaves Quito, the capital city, and goes into the local river, the Machangara, which then ends up going into these valleys where people are growing crops that then come back into the city of Quito. Yikes. Cool. Looking forward to seeing that footage. So um, Maya, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the, the, the specific measures that you presented in the paper, the data. Um, and I think the thing that I found most striking was this, this transposon. Maybe we can explain that, what that is and, and why this one's interesting. And then, and then how it was just, really just widely distributed across different, you know, the E. coli tree, right? Yeah. So transposons, and I'm not a molecular biologist, so I'm sure you can improve upon this definition, but um, they're just like little stretches of DNA that can kind of hop around between chromosomes, among plasmids. So if you have a bacteria that of course has a chromosome and maybe is um, harboring a couple of plasmids, so smaller circular bits of DNA as well, that transposon can hop between plasmids, it can hop between the plasmid and chromosome. It's just like another way for resistance genes to move between bacteria that's even smaller than a plasmid. And so, yeah, we found, we so we use long read sequencing um, to characterize four different bacteria, bacterial isolates, all E. coli, one that we, I think, two maybe that we detected in human feces, um, one that was recovered from chicken meat and one that was recovered from pork meat that was being sold in marketplaces in, in Phnom Penh. And so we wanted to, we had already determined that all four of these strains were carrying the same ESBL allele. So the same resistance gene was found in all four. But um, when I started presenting these results to researchers in Western settings and saying, look, we're finding the same resistance genes, both in, in E. coli from um, humans and animals, people would say, okay, well, if those resistance genes are encoded on different plasmids, you can't say there's sharing going on. So people were saying, well, maybe resistance evolved independently in human populations and in animal populations and your findings you know, have to be taken into, like, you have to take that into account when interpreting your findings. So we did the sequencing and um, to characterize the plasmids that were carrying these resistance genes, we found four different plasmids. Um, so like a different plasmid in each of these different strains. But when we compared the plasmids in three of the four, we found this like 6,000 base pair region. So this, this little stretch of DNA that was co-encoding resistance to um, third generation cephalosporins, so carrying this ESBL allele, and 
uh, encoding resistance to fluoroquinolone. So, so two really important drugs in human medicine. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, third generation cephalosporins are a pretty critical class of antibiotics. Fluoroquinolones include things like ciprofloxacin. That's a first line treatment for UTIs. And so we were finding this stretch of DNA in three different plasmids. It was, it was actually harbor or like flanked by kind of different elements. So the, the point I want to make, and maybe this isn't like most appropriate for the podcast, but like the point I want to make is that it's not exactly the same genetic element that was found in all three. It was a region that was harbored by like, it looks like multiple different kinds of transposon elements. So the region itself is what's under very high selection pressure. And so when we looked for that region among like all of the E. coli we had sequenced for this project and salmonella and Klebsiella pneumonia, we found it everywhere. Um, as you say, like, you know, in the paper, we had this phylogenetic tree of, I think just of the E. coli is in the main, uh, main text. And we have like little purple circles for every strain that was carrying this transposon region. And it's like saturated in purple circles. Um, so yeah. yeah, it looks like a Christmas tree. So it's a, it's a phylogenetic tree, but it looks like a Christmas tree that's been very well decorated. Yes. Right? And, 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 and I, to give people some context in, in high income countries like the U S or the UK, uh, you know, we would, we might expect to see one strain carrying an element like this, you know, a transposon like this, it'd, it'd be pretty rare and it would be carried by a single strain, but here it's just, it's just spread across the tree. Mm -hmm. And, and for me, this was the one of probably the most striking thing that I saw in your data is just how the indication that there just must be massive exchange of, of bacteria and interaction among bacteria and strong selection for this resistance to these two really important drugs, which then of course indicates high use. Mm -hmm. probably in both animals and, and people. And so uh, I thought the, you know, I thought the world needed to see this, <laughs> these data. So I'm really glad that the paper's out. Um, and, and one of the things that we talked about is the kind of bias this might in, indicate, right? So maybe you can talk about it a bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we, we did this, I was just presenting on this to some PhD students last week. Um, our, our long, long ordeal with this paper. I mean, those results that you're describing, we made that phylo tree, I don't know, right before the pandemic, it was a long time ago. <laughs> so we had those data and I initially was thinking, I'll present this and kind of like a micro microbial genomic sort of paper. And I was writing it up and describing all the ways that resistance could spread between humans and animals and kind of concluding with the same sentence that everybody concludes with, which is like more research is needed. And I was just like bummed out by that message. I just thought I was really missing the point. And so that's when I reached out to you and was like, Lance, how do we tell a bigger picture with this story? Because what I really wanted to tell was what you're talking about, this bias, this pushback that I thought I, that I know I was receiving from researchers in Western settings who who basically were like, look, your findings don't jive at all with what we're seeing here in England or in the Netherlands or in Germany. So like, maybe there's something wrong with your study design, or maybe you didn't collect the right kinds of samples, or, 
you know, or a lot of the times I would get, well, if you can't tell me what the direction of transmission is, then like, I don't really care about these results. And so there was like a, I think the bigger picture was missing. And I think what we both agreed on, what was alarming about this is that because the bulk of this kind of research comes from high-income countries, because they're the ones who can afford it, this is super expensive um, to do sequencing of bacterial isolates, that body of knowledge was kind of, I think at least at that time, informing um, for policymakers the relative importance of antibiotic use in, in animal agriculture for public health and how we should be addressing antimicrobial resistance. And so, um, we took these results and we wanted to make the argument like, look, the current body of evidence we have about transmission between animals and humans is really biased to high income settings. And we have to take that into account because the situation is very, very different in other kinds of countries where meat production is ramping up. And as we say in the paper, unless we start really actively thinking about what are the kinds of environmental controls, what are the levers we can pull to stop this transmission of bacteria back and forth both ways between humans and animals, just antibiotic stewardship, just trying to reduce antibiotic use in humans or animals, that might not cut it. That might not actually be enough. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I feel like this is a real thing, this high income country bias. And, I, and, I, and probably if I didn't work with you guys, you know, you and Jay, Maya, uh, that I would, I might fall prey to it as well, because when I look at our data from the U.S., you know, I, I can see the fingerprint of, you know, food animal production, lots of tetracycline use and lots of tetracycline resistance in the E. coli that we see in the food supply, food supply, but we're not seeing the extensively resistant bugs that, but that you guys are seeing. Right. And, and so I feel, you know, I feel like it's a story that again has to be told and and I find myself in this weird position of saying yeah so we're not seeing the extensively resistant ones here but that's not to say that antibiotic use in animal production doesn't matter it does matter we've just you know the FDA has made progress in terms of limiting which drugs can be used and then we also have clean water and we have flush toilets and we have you know we have you know sewage treatment plants, right? But if you, if you remove all of those controls, then chaos ensues. And, that, and that's really what I think we're seeing here. One, I had a question to follow up on that, which is I'm curious how you're thinking about, you know, I feel like a lot of times when you talk to clinical microbiologists, they're very focused on sort of healthcare facilities as sort of the incubators of these organisms, because you have a lot of complex patients on a lot of antibiotics. And, and so you're seeing a lot of, you know, transmission in hospitals. So how do you think of your research taking it to that, linking it to sort of clinical medicine? And what would you do to sort of either highlight the data you already have, or maybe even do some additional studies to show the influence that this community acquisition is having on sort of clinical medicine? Hmm. Well, I think, um, there's a pretty good understanding at this point that, um, well, I th think there is, that 
community exposure to antibiotic resistance is massive in many low and middle income countries. There was this um, interesting study. Uh, well, actually, maybe I shouldn't reference that because I'm not entirely sure if I I'm going to get it correctly. But I think people are aware that people are acquiring drug-resistant bacteria in the community. They're aware that people are self-medicating when they're sick and that by the time they get to the hospital, it's when they're very, very, very sick and things are just not responding to antibiotics anymore. You know, like, so we included in this, this, our E. coli tree, Christmas tree that Lance was talking about, we had some urinary tract infections but they were collected in the hospital setting and most of those patients died. Like those were people who were extremely ill from, from with their, those were very, very severe UTIs. And so I think, um, I think the approach that we're taking in general of making sure when we, when countries develop action plans um, to combat antibiotic resistance making sure that it's not just clinicians in the room, but there's also veterinarians and environmental health re researchers. I think that approach is correct, but the I, I feel like it's extra complicated because the point that, that we're trying to make in this paper that AMR researchers need to work with WASH researchers to address like community spread of resistance in low and middle income settings, like, those are those are even two different disciplines, right? And so um, it gets challenging pretty quickly, especially from a funding perspective, because people want to fund silos. They want to fund AMR stuff or they want to fund WASH stuff. But the intersections, as I think we all know, are super difficult to um, to get funding for. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I think I've always, I feel like I've always struggled sometimes uh, convincing people of this one health approach um, because I think people see it as something of like, oh, researchers, of course they want to study everything. But um, in this case, it really does matter that mm -hmm. we're studying what's happening in animals, in the environment, and also in humans. Um, so I do, but I feel like, you know, I don't know. I think it, it gets back to this Western sort of focus where uh, I think there's also this hospital bias or healthcare facility bias. And so, you know, this community acquisition sometimes doesn't register in people's minds. I don't know what you all think about that. Well, maybe Jay, like maybe this is like, maybe we're just like in a different niche, but I'm thinking about the traveler studies that, you know, we're interested in and that amazing paper that Ashley Earl's group just published in Lancet Microbe. We know, again, these are Western studies. We know that people traveling from Western settings to low and middle income countries, they are constantly picking up drug resistant bacteria, even when they have absolutely no interaction with the medical system. So we know that community sources of AMR are pretty significant in, in low and middle income countries. But yeah, again, like are, are clinicians connected to that literature very well? I don't know. So, so you bring up the traveler you know, the travelers studies. And, and one thing that this study brought up for me and, and others like it is, is that some of these countries that are, that are trying to sort of reinvent themselves and, and, you know, they're, and in, they're investing in things like um, tourism or to, to boost their economies. Right. And what happens when 
you know, if they don't address the antimicrobial resistance and the overuse of antibiotics and, and they become hotspots for untreatable bacteria, how, you know, how's that going to affect tourism? And, and won't the CDC start to make travel warnings? I, 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 does that concern you? I think um, that's a very, very valid point. I, I remember once a woman contacted me after, I'm not sure what paper was published, but she was a European and she emailed me. It must have been a paper we, we published from one of these Cambodian studies. And she said, I am an older woman. I have been getting recurrent UTIs. My doctor has told me I can no longer travel to Southeast Asia because they're concerned I'm going to pick up a highly drug resistant infection. And she's like, I just retired. I love to travel. What do you think? <laughs> and I mean, I didn't, I was like, I'm not a doctor. Like you should definitely listen to your doctor, but doctors are giving this advice. Like maybe not the CDC, but doctors are giving the advice to, to people who they deem to be high risk. Like don't travel to certain places because you could come back with something that either we can't treat or is going to cause really severe side effects if we do treat it that are going to further degrade your quality of life. Um, so in some ways we are kind of approaching that, I think. One, you know, Lance, following, following on to that question and then Maya's response is that this has been a movement for among certain groups. So at the World Bank, the Water and Sanitation Program, which was partly, partially funded by the Gates Foundation, um, they really started focusing on the cost of sanitation. And they, and I, I think, this gets to a broader point in public health where sometimes health is not a motivating factor. When you go to the Ministry of Finance and you start talking about improved health and those sorts of things, they're kind of maybe their eyes glaze over or, or, or they start to doze off. But when you start talking about sort of really economics of like tourism dollars of, you know, actually putting it into the minister of finances sort of lexicon or, you know, the, sort of their language, then they start to sort of see the relevance of these things and begin to put money. Um, or this is sort of the, the idea that if you can speak sort of from more of a financial perspective, like tourism dollars, like the consequences of health and development and in terms of, you know, economic development, then maybe people will begin to take this more seriously and, and invest in these things. Yeah, well, I think, unfortunately, you're the only microbiologist I know with an MBA, Jay. But we need more, we know, we need more people uh, that are cross-trained. Right? Well, I have to say, I never used that MBA. It just sort of, you know, I got it and it just sat on the shelf. <laughs> oh, I saw you do an economic analysis that... <laughs> help change an industry, Jay. We'll talk about that on another podcast, I think. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, aware of the, the ticking clock and, and Maya, that you're a hot commodity. Uh, so I, you know, I'm just wondering if you have any other thoughts that you'd like to share on the paper or any, any last comments before we wrap up? Yeah, I guess um, this is a something I shared with the, the students I was speaking to last week. So I was giving them a talk about how to turn research into a commentary, something they have to do for their qualifying exams. And I really talked up Victor's graphics because I think <laughs> I think they sell all the points we're trying to make way more clearly, no offense, than any of us could. And <laughs> 
Um, what I told them was like, I think, you know, you had these contacts or ecologists who we brought in and the questions they asked made it really clear what the gaps were in our ability to communicate this information clearly. So, you know, it was Bruce's suggestion, for example, to have that flow diagram showing how ESBL partitioning between humans and animals is so different in a, a Western setting versus Cambodia. Victor made these, these like beautiful graphics. And um, so I guess I just, and it was a lot of work, I think, like we met a lot to just try to explain what, what the study was about and why it was important. And then they translated that into, into these cool graphics. Um, I hope microbiologists and people working on AMR can do more of that because I think uh, I hope people read the the text we wrote line by line via Zoom over the pandemic, but they're definitely going to look at the pictures. And yeah. um, they, those are, yeah, those are just very powerful. And, and I think more people should think about collaborating with ecologists. Yeah. So I think we can't leave without telling everybody to, that, you know, we're going to put a link to the paper, but we've got to tell them a little bit more about Victor Lyshek and and Bruce Hungate. So these are uh, two of our colleagues from the uh, Center for Ecosystem Science and Society at um, Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. And, and uh, Victor's just this, I think, just a visionary. <laughs> you know, he's an illustrator, but we would, we would have these conversations with him. We'd just kind of frame it out, the basics, and then, then he would go away for a week and then he'd call us from his car, you know, he'd use oh, from the car. <laughs> sometimes with an aluminum hat to make sure nobody's reading his brain. No, I'm just kidding. Victor's amazing. And, 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 but he would come back with these brilliant figures and, and what he'd been doing in the, in the week between was going and finding images and, and researching these sites that we talked about. And he would nail down the houses that people were living in and, and, he would have these 3D structures of a of a concentrated animal feeding operation and the and the effluent. It was just amazing to work with this guy. And and uh, I you know I worked with him for a year few years before you we started working on this together. And and I'm just constantly impressed by him. So uh, everybody, please check out the figure um, and let's all become better communicators of science and 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 get this out there. Uh, for people to understand and, and we can change course, I hope. Well, Maya, I, you know, thank you so much for being our, you know, our first guest with the sort of reboot of Superbugs Unplugged. And we hope that maybe you'll come back as a regular, you know, commentator. Um, I won't say regular, but I will come back. <laughs> you didn't have enough fun, this fun. <laughs> forever i would prefer to just you know talk science with you guys without being recorded but i guess that's just me. <laughs> yeah it'd probably be better for our careers if we weren't always recording ourselves uh, but, okay well thank you again and uh well, we'll thank see you soon. Maya. yeah thank you thanks for listening to this month's episode of superbugs unplugged we really appreciate it, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm Laura Rogers, Deputy Director for ARAC. Now that you've listened to us, we'd love to hear from you. Please send any questions you have our way, and we'll do our best to answer them in future episodes. We'd also love to hear your ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the coming months. You can reach us at superbugsunplugged at gmail.com. And one last thing. If you'd like to help us spread the word, 
please give us a five-star review and ask your friends and colleagues to subscribe. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and every major listening app. We'll talk to you again next month.